Morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. Everybody enjoying this muggy day? <laughs> it's interesting weather for us around here. It's usually a bit drier or just super wet. Um, but it's those in-between times where it's just it starts feeling like we're in uh, Hawaii or something. It's just thick. Um, continuing in our account of Joseph and his interactions with his brothers and the difficulties that will therein lie um, as they're going to come back together after 20 years beginning in this chapter. And we'll actually continue in this kind of zoomed in look for the next four weeks or so. And it'll just be very, very similar things they're working through. And as I was considering this and reflecting upon um, what we have coming up ourselves, we're starting small groups, we're having this renewed focus on character and the importance of ourselves growing and allowing other people to grow as well. Being able to take time to reflect, take time to consider, take time to actually have deep conversations about where we lack. And that's actually why we've chosen to do this character study through the small groups as opposed to just on Sunday mornings talking about a character trait week after week after week. Because we could do that, it would be good, there would be good points that could be made out of it, but the real growth happens when you have an in-depth conversation with somebody in front of you and you have to say honestly, this is where I am. This is what I struggle with. This is the challenges I have. This is how it's coming out in my life. Do you have any way that you could support, love, and encourage me in how I could walk through this and be better today and tomorrow and thereafter than I am right now? How can we help each other grow? Because there's a lot of times that we can look at people and we look at life and we look at what we've seen and we can have this mentality, well, people don't ever really change. They may work on it a little bit, but the core of them doesn't ever really change. But that's not what God does with people. God loves us too much to let us stay exactly as we are. And he's going to push change. Some of us he's gentler with. Some of us he's not so gentle. Um, and you know which category you're in. Um, but he's going to cause change to happen. He's going to cause you to be stretched and need to grow. And so how can we be obedient and humble in that? Because an interesting thing, when we're humble and we go before God and we ask him to have this change within us and grow within us, he's usually gentler about the process. It's when we're prideful and we don't want to admit to any sort of change, and I've got this all figured out, that then God chooses to humble us therein. And so which one do we want to do? Do we want to humbly go before God, or do we want God to humble us before him? And so that's why we want to make sure that each and every one of us has this opportunity to grow together. When we're looking at Joseph and his family right now, they're going to come back together after a long period of time, and some terrible things happened. They did terrible things to Joseph, which resulted in other more terrible things there along the lines. They were the cause of this great pain and suffering in his life. And he's finally in a spot in his life where he's able to get past that. He's no longer a slave. He's no longer in prison. He's got a good job. He's got a family. He's able to move forward. He's doing well with what he's been given. When we consider the names of his children as he reflects upon his life, the first one is, I have forgotten my hardship and my father's house. I've been able to put it behind me. I don't have to live there anymore. I don't have to live in that anymore. The second child is named, essentially, made me fate fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has prospered me. It was hard. It was rough. It was difficult. But God has taken me through it, and it's in my past now. 
which is good, and it's an essential place for us to get to, but he has never actually dealt with the pain. He's never actually walked through the process of restoration with those that hurt him. He's never gone to them or been able to go to them and confront them on it. He's never had that moment, which is essential for believers to do. It's essential that we come to this place where we can approach the difficulty. We can address it face on. And that's a really difficult spot to be in in life, to face that. Because a lot of times we just want to put the past in the past and not think about it anymore. I want to dredge up those old feelings. But God tells us, in all things, if you know that you've done wrong, or if someone has done wrong to you, you need to go to the person and you need to resolve it as soon as possible. Don't sit on it. Don't talk to a bunch of other people about it. Go to them and solve the issue so that you can be restored and you can truly put it in the past. Because what we're going to see today is what happens when you don't actually resolve those things. They're just in the past. You've moved away, whatever it might be. I don't have to deal with this anymore. But then that person suddenly is in your face. And it could have been 5, 10, 20 years, and, all of, and you never thought about it, but now they're right there. And I have to deal with this right now. And the longer we wait, the harder it's going to be because we will have spent that entire time portraying them a certain way. And so what we're going to see today is that's not always, it's not always that simple. Most people that have hurt us, it's so much easier to think of them as the Saturday morning comic villain, where they're just all bad, everything about them bad, their entire character is bad, there's nothing redeemable about them, and it's easy to be upset at that person. It's easy to want vindication against that person, and justice to be served against that person, and to leave no wiggle room for that person. It's so much easier if they're just a villain. It's so much harder if they've actually grown as a person, if they actually feel remorse and sorrow over what they've done if they actually want to restore things and move past it and deal with the confrontation and walk it out. That's hard. Because then we have to go internally and we have to consider, well, what has God done for me and what has he called for me to do towards this person? How do we walk that out? How do we deal with that when those emotions are so hurtful? so damaging, such sorrow from the past, and God calls us to forgive them. And we're going to look at the challenges therein today. Out of Genesis 42, it says, when Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. So we can see at the very beginning here that Joseph's, 10 of Joseph's brothers are lacking. None of them has any plan whatsoever. They're just all looking at one another, hoping someone else has got a plan. How are you going to get us out of this? They're just kind of all, so to speak, sitting on their hands and just waiting for someone else to have a brilliant idea while they slowly starve. And so that forces Jacob, who's around 130 years old right now, to get off and go and take care of business. And if the 130-year-old is having to take care of business, there's a problem. 
And so he hears it, get off your duffs, go and buy us some food. What are you doing? We're going to starve. Why are you waiting for somebody else to figure this out? There's something lacking within them, some sort of initiative, some sort of agency, whether it be from the difficulties that they've walked through in the past, through the relationships with their family, through the just lacking of leadership skills in general. They don't know what to do, and they're not trying to, at this point to do anything. They're just hoping that a miracle falls in their lap. That can be a spot that we are in life sometimes. We can look at the situation, we can see it being dire, and then we don't, we don't know what to do, and we're just hoping God just makes something happen. And then we stand and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. And someone else goes, there's grain in Egypt. Are we listening? Are we acting upon this when those things come across? And then we look at Benjamin, and it's a further reminder of the conflict and the divide and perhaps some of the challenges that are creating these issues within the family. Benjamin and Joseph both have the same mother and the same father. And these are the only two children of Rachel. They're the favored children. It's this rift that's been caused in this family from the very beginning. Jacob didn't do his kids any favors with this. But he's being babied, and that's kind of what happens with the baby. I think everybody in the family, unless you're an only child like me, and then everybody goes, you're the baby too. And I'm like, mm-mm. Uh. But you got, you, there's this knowing thing that, well, the baby gets all this special treatment in the family. And Benjamin is no exception because he's not a baby. He's not young at all, actually. At the absolute youngest, Benjamin is 20 years old right now. Absolute youngest. He's probably closer to 30. We don't know exactly though, but he, he's not a little boy. He's not a child. He's growing into a man and dad isn't letting him be a man because he's worried that he's going to be lost too. I don't want to allow him to experience any sort of danger, any sort of pain, any sort of potential that I could lose him. He's not willing to let go, and it's causing further rifts in his family. We consider the other brothers. They're somewhere between the age of 37 and 46 right now, and they are all within a seven-year span of each other. Dad and moms, moms were busy for a little while, a very short period of time in which they had a whole lot of kids. So you've got these men that are between the age of 37 and 46, and they need to figure something out. And I considered these men and this age in their life, and there's usually two things that happen in this age, one or the other. Either one, they're finally accepting that they are no longer a little boy. They are now a man. They have to start acting like a man. In the 20s and the early 30s, you can hide for it for a little while cling to some of those old things. But when you start hitting that age, I'm getting just about to that age, people start going, you know, aren't you a little old for that? And you have this realization, I have responsibilities. I have priorities I have to fulfill. People are depending on me. I, I can't act like this anymore. Nobody even looks at me like this anymore. It doesn't matter how youthful a face you have, eventually you stop looking like a child. The second thing that can happen is the midlife crisis. <laughs> What have I done? I haven't experienced enough. I haven't had enough fun in my life. I haven't done all these things, and I've got all these kids, and I've got all these responsibilities. What am I going to do? I'm going to buy a motorcycle. That's <laughs> going to solve this problem. Bad choices. Because they're desperately clinging 
to what is no longer. That's not these men. From when we read from the passage of what they're trying to do, they've, they're trying to grow up. They're trying to be faithful in their families now. We're going to see that they, they don't revel in the choices of their past. They're not really terribly happy about it, but what do they do? We have an interesting situation here. They've done terrible wrong to their brother, and they know it. But they can't do anything about it. They've had to sit and hold on to their guilt for 20 years. But they can't go and get Joseph. They don't know where he is. The assumption is that he's dead or he's enslaved in someone's house in the entirety of the land of Egypt. They can't fix it even if they wanted to. And so they get to sit with their guilt and their sorrow and their shame year after year after year after year. And they can't move past it. It's harder to hate somebody when we consider them in this light and the reality that they might have grown. They're not a comic book villain. They're a person that made a really bad mistake. But how do they rectify it? How do they go back from that? Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold all the people, sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. Genesis 37, he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph was around the age of 17. When he had this dream, he told his brothers, and they hated him for it. This was the thing, the catalyst that started it all. I just thought it was so ironic that it's a dream about sheaves of grain, because now they're here bowing down to Joseph in order to buy grain. But what's interesting from this, and I considered if Joseph had not had this dream, would he be in Egypt right now? Because it's the dream that really was that last straw that fueled their hate, that caused them to conspire against him in that particular moment in time, to cause them to sell him down to Egypt so he could be there as a slave to be trapped in that house, to go to the prison, to be at the right point point, the right time to stand before Pharaoh, to then save the whole world through this. And would any of that happened if he hadn't had this dream? That's the scale God is working on. This is how God looks at things compared to how we look at things, is that one dream changes the tide for humanity. He didn't have to do anything in the world. He just had to give one dream to one person at the right time. That's the remarkable, incredible God we serve and the things that he understands beyond ourselves. So I asked a question after this because I remembered from last week it talked about Joseph stored up all the grain in all the cities. 
So all the surrounding regions, there's a lot of cities in Egypt, and there's a lot of places where they would be growing food. In all of those cities, they stored up the grain all around them. So why is he in this particular city out of any other? Because he's governor over the whole land. So why is he here at this one? And so we brought a map to kind of help us with this conceptually. So Egypt is the green region. It's actually this whole region, but this area that looks like a desert is a desert, and <laughs> people don't live there. But interesting thing, though, I encourage you, go home, go into Google Maps, go to about right here in Egypt today and zoom in. It looks like a little brown spot. It's about 30 giant circles where they're growing food in the middle of the desert. It's the miracle of modern innovation these days. It's incredible what you can do pretty much anywhere now if you have enough money to do it. But this is where everyone would have been residing, because this is the Nile River. It runs right here, and then it all floods out into this plain area, and it's just a really great place to grow a lot of food. But I considered the people coming from the surrounding regions, where would they be coming from? So if you live down here, you're going to head up along the coast, and you're going to come into Egypt right about here. If you live in this, in the Arab Arabia region, you're going to come up along here, and then over here again in the same exact spot. This also is a deserted area. People go around, they don't go through. And then if you're anywhere from this region up here, you come down and you hit the exact same spot. So if you have thousands and thousands and thousands of migrants coming from other parts of the world, and you're the only place that has food, and we know that in desperate situations, people make desperate bad decisions, would you not want to funnel them all into the same spot? So you could keep an eye on everybody. You can maintain control over everything. You could make sure to keep track of what goes in and what comes out. You don't have to worry about lines of communication because it's not like right now where you could just type a message and it's there in an instant. And who would you want there to make sure this is all flowing smoothly? The guy who's overseeing everything. Now, did he have in his mind potentially that he might see his brother someday? Probably. He's a fairly smart guy. But was that his main reason for being here? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. We can only guess based on what we see and what God gives us through his word. But at this point, he's being face, forced to face his past. He might have thought that someday this day would come, but who knows what day that will be. Probably thinking for a long, long time about what he would do and what he would say if he ever saw his brothers again. And I think there are people in this room that are perhaps in that situation where some terrible things happened in the past and those people are behind you and you've thought about for a long time, what am I going to do and what am I going to say if I see that person again? And so we're going to see the difficulty in that. That no matter how much you've thought you've prepared for it, the first time you see them, a lot of emotions are going to well up. A lot of pain, a lot of hurt. It's all going to become immediately fresh. And it's going to be hard. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Sounds like something a spy would say. <laughs> he said to them, 
No, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It's as, as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Breaking down a little bit of what's happening here. It's been somewhere between 20 and 22 years since they've seen each other. Joseph is probably expecting that he may someday see them again. Got his eyes out for them. They never expect Joseph to, to see him ever again. They're not looking for him. And context is everything. I experienced this while I was working at, um, in banks and credit unions as a teller. People would come in, and I exist to them as this. Person sitting there, smile. All you are is a torso. You don't have legs. And so that's how they know you. They might see you once a week, maybe once a month. You chat. It could go years go by. But when you go out into the world, and you're both bumping to each other at Rayleigh's or Safeway or wherever you get groceries, and suddenly they, they stop in the aisle, and they almost like deer in the headlights, like, I know you. Where do I know you from? And you have to go, hi. And they go, the bank! <laughs> you're out of context. Person you've known for years, you expect them to see them in a certain place and look a certain way. And the mind does funny things when people are out of context, let alone a gap of 20 years. He no longer looks anything like they do. He would be dressed in Egyptian attire. He would have shaved off his beard and never shaved it back because the Egyptians think it's unclean to have a beard and the Israelites think it's uh, dishonorable to not have a beard. So he doesn't look anything like he used to anymore. He's not dressing anything like he used to anymore. And he's in a position of power where they would have never expect to see him. So they don't recognize him at all. And then I thought, why on earth is he accusing his brothers of spying? because he knows full well that they're not spies. He knows where they're from. Why would he be accusing them of this? And I thought, well, he's a human being who's had a long time to be angry. Maybe he's just trying to scare the snot out of them. Because consider, if anyone is accused of espionage and he's the highest authority in the land of their pharaoh, he can just execute them on the spot for that if he wants. And so he's perhaps wanting to just give a little back to get a little return on the investment he's had over the last 20 years. But I considered something else. He actually is concerned for his brother, who is not there, and his father, who is not there. And these brothers, he can't trust. He's got no reason whatsoever to trust in anything they have to say. He hasn't seen him for 20 years. He hasn't seen any growth. He doesn't know them from anything. The last experience he had was them selling him into slavery. Did they kill off his other brother too? Did they kill off his father? These are bloodthirsty men. So how can I make sure that these people are going to be really cooperative right now? 
well, I'm going to accuse you of spying, so I can execute you on the spot if I want to. People get real cooperative real fast in these sort of situations. And so then he puts them into confinement for a little, while, little time, gives them some time to sweat it out, but then he seems to change his tune after three days. Before, we're going to let one person go, and now it's only one person that has to stay, and I wondered why. And so if you've had some time to ponder over this and consider, and you're in Joseph's situation, and you want your father to survive, and you want your brother to survive if he's still around, and perhaps those other families, these are still his families, even if the brothers aren't on his number one list. Well, what would happen if you sent one person with enough grain for 10 families during a very difficult and distressing time when everybody's going to Egypt to buy grain? You think that guy's going to make it home? Not a chance. So instead, we'll send the whole company and keep one because he knows we've got five more years of famine. They have to come back. So this will be my security. They will have to return to me. And then if my brother and my father are alive, they will still live. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Mr. I told you so. Anyone have a Mr. or a Mrs. I told you so in your life? Some of you might be Mr. or Mrs. I told you so. Just so we're all aware, I told you so is never helpful in any context. It feels so good to say, but it helps nothing. And it's helping nothing right now. It's just, let me rub a little salt into the wound. Oh, that hurts? Oh, that's too bad. That doesn't help anybody. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. There's clearly a guilty conscience here. They're being reminded of their sin through this whole encounter. They've had to go down to Egypt where their brother was sold, so it's going to bring up the memory. They're now being accused of something they didn't do, and they're being punished for something they didn't do. They're suffering similar injustices, and instead of making excuses, instead of complaining, instead of blaming, what they said is, we did this to ourselves. We're guilty, and that's why this has come upon us. And they didn't say it to get out of trouble. They didn't say it out of coercion. They just admitted it when they thought, no one else can hear what we're saying, but this is where we're at, and we did this. And so then you have Joseph standing here, who it's easier if they're just villains. It's easier if they haven't changed. It's easier if they're not remorseful for him to carry out whatever designs he has for them. But then to suddenly hear they feel that they have done wrong, they know that they've done wrong, and they're accepting that they've done wrong. But there hasn't been anything for 20 years that they could do about it to be in that situation, that moment, and have that realization would cause a whole slew of difficult emotions, and that's exactly what we see have to Joseph. He has to leave to go and compose himself. That tying in between wanting vengeance, wanting justice, 
and seeing the remorse of his family and seeing that they, they are perhaps not who I've thought them to be for this time. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money's been put back. Here, it's in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? I looked at that and I thought, why is that so concerning? And we have to go back where they're being accused of being spies and dishonest men. And now they're going back home and they have all the money that they took and all the grain. So it looks like they're thieves now. And so who's going to ever believe them when they come back and they say, no, we're not spies and we're not thieves. Not a soul would believe that. So what are they going to do? How are they going to get Simeon back? What are they going to do when they go see their dad? And so they're left with this emotional ordeal this entire time between we need to go back to get him, we need to be able to find food, we've already been accused of being spies, and now they're going to accuse us of being thieves. If we go back, we're as good as dead, but we can't go back, otherwise Simeon's as good as dead. And to live in this and deciding what and who they're going to be. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We've never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you're not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they, had saw, when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Jacob is a little bit of a drama king. But he's, he's looking at a very real thing here. It may not be the boy's fault that Simeon is no more. But he knows full well if they go back, Simeon's not coming back. And Benjamin's not coming back because they're going to think you're spies and thieves and they're going to kill you all and then you're all going to be gone. It's a real big concern. In what do they do? And how loyal of brothers will they be to try to, are they going to simply sacrifice Simeon and try to do the best they can here and to live with it? Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Shoal. Oh, Reuben. Reuben never quite gets it right. He never knows quite what to say or what to do and his timing is abysmal. 
you have Jacob, who's worried about losing all of his children and his sons being taken from him. And Reuben comes and says, hey, you know what? If that happens, you could kill your grandsons too. <laughs> Reuben, what are you thinking? And this is Reuben. In that, in difficult, distressing times, where we want to have some solution or we want to have some sort of response, that doesn't mean you need to just say the first thing that comes to your mind. It's better to be silent and consider than to say something foolish that you can't get back. So what can we learn from this account? We're still going to be going through this for the next several weeks, but what can we take away today from this? When we're dealing with the past that's forced into our present. And so I have two perspectives. One, for those that have been wronged, God has a difficult assignment. Out of Romans 12, it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome ev- do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Never respond in kind. Always respond with the goodness of God. And when terrible things have been done to you, that is all the more difficult to do. Matthew 6 says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This very idea can get between you and God. That God says, I was willing to overlook every awful, evil thing you've ever done in the entirety of your life. I was willing to give you the gift of salvation. I was willing to overlook every offense. I was willing to give my son that you could live, that you could be with me forever, that we could be restored. I was willing to do this for you. How could you not do such a thing for someone else? Does the knowledge of that make it any easier? No, but it's an understanding of what God has called us to. God has called us to something more than what our natural tendencies would desire. We, want to desi- we desire swift vengeance. Justice needs to be served. They need to be punished. We cry out for it, and God says, all will come to account. While you're here, you do good and you forgive. For the one who has done wrong, Proverbs 28, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Psalm 32, 
Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by heat of summer. Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Salah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. If we have done wrong, we need to confess it first to the Lord and then to the one you've wronged. You need to go to them and you need to acknowledge your guilt. And if possible, and it's not always possible, but if possible, you need to make it right. You need to accept the consequences of things that we've done. We can't hide from the consequences because they're unpleasant. We have to face the reality. I did this. And God has called me to make it right as best as I can. Whether that's simply facing the consequences or restoring what was lost or simply humbling myself before somebody and saying, I was wrong. And then God calls us to go our way and sin no more. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with us?